Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I am so thrilled to be talking to one of my favorite authors, the great Claudia Gray. I'm sure everyone listening has read at least one of her books, Star Wars or otherwise, but of course she's the author for Lost Stars, Bloodline, Master and Apprentice, one of the people behind Project Luminous, now known to us as the High Republic. We talk about all these books and so many more, and it is a real treat for me to be able to delve into all of this with her. I hope you enjoy. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 120. Claudia Gray. Were there specific authors and types of books or genres that you gravitated towards growing up? I was in that first generation of kids who grew up with Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Uh, It came out the summer I turned seven. So obviously that was a hugely dominating factor in my childhood. (laughs) I think it was for every kid in that era. Right. You know, especially now, you know, the monoculture is dead. And for people that didn't come of age really in the 80s or 90s or 70s, I don't know if it's possible to even fully appreciate like how omnipresent popular things were. You know, you could not not have Star Wars in front of you everywhere. I mean, there was the disco remix of the John Williams music. People <laughs> literally danced to that in nightclubs. It was everywhere. Right. So obviously that gave me an interest in sort of not quite science fiction, let's say science fantasy, fantasy in general, anything that was going to be a little bit weird. I guess. Um, Very, very dominant books in my childhood were, this is embarrassing, but Reader's Digest had these two compilations. I think one was Strange Stories, Amazing Facts. Uh And the other was like Tales of the Unnatural or Uh something like this. And it was just anything that was a little bit eerie, sometimes total fact, like the sinking of the Titanic. Sometimes it'd be, you know, total mythology, like the Jersey Devil. And all of it was just together in one book, straight-faced for you to assess. And little me, my grandparents had these, and I read them backwards and forwards. But I sort of knew a little bit about Star Trek, again, Mm. because you were in the world, you you knew this. And when I was about 12, I was in a bookstore in a mall, and there was a book about Star Trek. I was like, huh, I didn't know they wrote books about that. And I picked it up. And the back said something about this scientist in this weird experiment. It said, when Captain Kirk is killed, Spock must do this or that. <laughs> uh-huh. And I was like, Captain Kirk gets killed? Like, that sounded like a big thing. Knowing as little about Star Trek as I did, I knew, wasn't he the main character? I didn't know. Uh-huh. And so I got my parents to get me this book. And I became a huge Star Trek fan through the books alone. Wow. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't really regularly get to see it. I only got to see a handful of episodes before I would say I graduated from high school. Next generation, I got to start watching before I got to really see the original Trek. But mm-hmm. I certainly spent a lot of my early teens reading about. And those were the great tie-in novel eras where none of this stuff had to tie together. None of the books had to relate to anything else. They were just letting people do whatever they wanted to do. I don't know if you, have you ever seen any of these books? Oh, I I have. (laughs) Everything's in boxes right now, but I have, Uh I have so many. (laughs) Because they're my favorite, like what you're saying, it it was kind of like an untamed world. And it's just so fun to to read through it, especially now with, with kind of uh, gravitating towards canon and to making sure that everything is cohesive. It is a whole different time and I love it. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I love the fact that like, oh, I get to make little bits of canon, but there's something you can't help but 
envy the sheer like liberty and nerve of the writers <laughs> like Spock becomes a space pirate right. and he's a sex symbol in the galaxy gets <laughs> like that's Blackfire that's that right. book you know? <laughs> and sometimes they were just great like that whole planet that explains how Uhura knows these cat people aliens <laughs> uh-huh. to figure out the cat people alien culture and it's literally just them on this planet building wood things and figuring out cat people culture and it was awesome <laughs> yeah. great book um And yeah, you just don't get that kind of stuff anymore. I think despite all of that, there was maybe a slim, very slim, but slim chance that I might not have become like a real dyed in the wool, like nerd fangirl. I was definitely conversant. I was there. (laughs) Uh Yeah. But like, you know, it's possible that my life trajectory as an adult could have slipped me out of it. But then when I was 23, right at the point where you might begin to slip out of it, right. the X-Files debut. Oh my gosh, and yeah. Over, <laughs> over, <laughs> over from that moment on. And that also was how I got started getting interested in writing. You know, yeah. Mulder and Scully needed to kiss. Obviously. Right, obviously. We had to see to that ourselves. I'd love to track that journey of your writing career and especially just starting from a love of the genre and of IP and of fan fiction and moving more and more into professional setting. I'd love to trace that journey that you've taken over the years because it's fascinating and also just kind of a testament to you having an innate love of storytelling. The urge to write fan fiction is really the fundamental storytelling impulse. The Greek myths don't all go one way. There are different versions of things. Why are there different versions of things? People heard this story They knew about these gods or these mythological characters and they added something on. And if it was good, more and more people retold that. Uh, There's not one way the Arthurian legends go. There's not one version of Robin Hood. People wanted to add to it. It's a very natural thing to take characters that you're familiar with and go, oh, you know what else could happen? The concept of originality is pretty new. You know, what is it? Only one of Shakespeare's plays is a totally new idea, original to him. Mm -hmm. Everything else was based on history, based on existing stories, etc. I wrote a ton of it and a lot of it was very bad. And then some of it got a little better. Then I had my first like book length idea. And that had always been a big stumbling block for me because I'd always wanted to write, but I just could not imagine, you know, how do you come up with that much story to fill a book? And then the first time I had that idea like that, and I sort of got a sense of the heft of it, I was like, oh, it's this much, you know, it's this much story. And I know that's a really vague and amorphous way to talk about it, but that's the only way I know to put it. It's sort of once I understood like, this is the level basically, of what you need to have going on, then you can move forward. Even though it was still a few years after that, before I began writing professionally, I knew from then on that it was probably something that I would want to try. As you're growing as an author, how did you kind of slowly start putting together the necessary skills to eventually be creating incredible worlds consistently. (laughs) I was hugely into Buffy and Angel the first few years. And this is how I wound up writing something that had a lot to do with vampires and teenagers. And I had the stupid, dumb luck of having something go out basically the week that everybody in publishing was going, this thing called Twilight. Oh my God. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I mean, in many ways, the book was not ready. In 
almost all the ways I was not ready. I got stupid lucky it was bought. It's very much a results, not typical situation. I am the exception. You know, I stumbled into this and they gave me a four book deal. (laughs) I was like, really? I mean, and now that I've been doing this longer, I'm like, really that happened? (laughs) I dove in and I was so proud of myself. And I've said this a lot, but as fans, we tend to really idolize the idea of the concept that is complete and perfect from the beginning. You know, they had all seven seasons planned out. They knew from the first episode the way the very last episode would end. We do this and I plotted out all of this stuff for these four books and I thought, oh, so great. And I would say I was not more than a month in working on the second one before I was saying, why did I think I was never going to have another idea? And also, <laughs> why did I not realize that the ideas I had later on might be better? Mm-hmm. Just because I hadn't structured a book series before, I was kind of locked into that plot. There were things I were, was able to shift or change a little, but the fundamentals I was kind of locked into. That was definitely a big learning process. My second series, I was like, the villain's plan has three parts. It was a trilogy. Uh-huh. Three parts. I have a rough idea of what the last two parts are, but we'll work with that when we get there. Every book is about the three parts. And that gave me much more room to adapt and build on things as I went. I still had series structure. It was more fluid and I trusted myself more, which you have to learn to do. That second series came out right as publishers were going, huh, these books about the supernatural don't seem to be selling as much anymore. So that second series, the Spellcaster series, was enjoyed by dozens worldwide. After that, I had to come up with something else. And uh-huh. I had my sort of science fiction idea, which was the Firebird series that starts right. with A Thousand Pieces of You. And it's about the daughter of two famous scientists chasing her father's killer through alternate dimensions, which was so much fun to write. I cannot even tell you. I really let go a lot more with that book. I really got to stretch a lot more and have a lot more fun with that. It got me working again, moving forward again at a point in my career where if I had paused, it would not have gone too well, I think. And then as that series came out and met with a better reception, that's when I get the email from Star Wars from the first time. And I'm psyched about that. I thought in the beginning, well, they'll just give me an outline and I'll write whatever they say, right? It'll be fun. I'll do it just because it'll be fun, you know? And instead, they had a very rough idea about two sentences. And I changed two of the, one of the sentences, and they're like, (laughs) okay. Uh, And and then I did an outline, and that turned into Lost Stars. I was very much surprised by how much liberty I had. That was great. Since then, it's been a little bit of a dance between keeping my own stuff going and working with tie-ins. I remember early on, I think it was right after Lost Stars came out, I was still on Twitter at that point, personally. Somebody tweeted at me, they're like, you don't have to write your adult books anymore. You could just write Star Wars. You know, and I just, <laughs> right, yeah, I just let it go. But in my head, right. I was like, I want you to take how much money you think you make for YA, right. how much money you think you make for Star Wars, reverse those. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and then you have a slightly better idea of why you can't just do that. Right. I mean, you can't, you know, you don't really see much in the way of royalties and your work schedule is not something that you have the same amount of control over. It really raises your profile, Mm -hmm. but you have to take care that it doesn't pigeonhole you to the point where if you do go out with something original, people think 
what why is this here? You know? I've kept going with my own YA science fiction series, which was Defy the Stars, the Constellation series, which I had a ton of fun with. I got to write some graphic novels for DC, the first right. of which, House of L Book One, is already out. House of L Book Two will publish early next year. And even though that's in the Superman mythos, it is mostly about original characters. When you're working in graphic novels and comics, there's not quite the same thing about working in existing intellectual property. It's assumed that you'll probably do that. And then I was able to sell my first murder mystery, which is coming out in May of next year. The Murder of Mr. Wickham, which is a Jane Austen, Agatha Christie mashup. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, my love of other universes, but <laughs> very different other universes is coming right. into play. And I have to tell you, writing that has been just absolute joy. So I'm starting work on the sequel now. I'd love to hone in on Lost Arts just briefly, where you had to retell the original trilogy with new perspectives in one book. And how did you decide what points from the original trilogy that you were going to pull from to really make sure those were the ones that would benefit your character specifically the most? Some things are obvious. From the beginning... One of the two sentences they gave me was that one member of these childhood friends would wind up in the empire and the other eventually would join the rebellion. And so it seemed kind of like a gimme to put them in the Imperial Academy, which meant, of course, the events around the Death Star were going to be a part of their story. And then I knew Thane would be joining the rebellion and Hoth seemed like a very good place to tie that together. And of course, obviously, you're going to have things with Endor. You're going to follow through on the biggest things. There right. were a couple of things in the original outline I had suggested adding connections and originally said oh it's too much even people who are really good at what they do but aren't writers sometimes they're not very good at looking at an outline and understanding how it's going to come across in a book because when I handed in the draft they're like oh we need more tie-ins <laughs> you know because they didn't realize that these little flagged things were only going to be moments right. in a bigger story. It was most interesting digging into the things where I knew the different perspectives would actually add something. You know, looking at the destruction of the Death Star through the eyes of two people who cared about a lot of people who were on board and could have been there themselves. That was definitely something that I wanted to do. Thinking about Alderaan and what that means for people. The Empire, they're this big evil thing, but to people that grew up in it, that's the government. Right. That's the state. If you're told over and over, well, there's a really good reason this happened, a lot of people will in the end believe it. It was important to me to sort of have Sienna be an imperial officer who's fundamentally a good person, because then you have to ask, like, what is she being told? What is she telling herself? When does she have moments where what she's doing seems fully heroic and worthwhile? to her and really to just about anybody. I think there's a sequence where she goes and rescues some people, some stormtroopers that have been abandoned. You know, I wanted to have some moments like that. And then Thane, I thought it was important to have somebody in the rebellion who wasn't all starry-eyed, you know, right. the force be with us. <laughs> Somebody's there like, I don't know about you guys, but you seem better than the Empire, so let's do something. Right. You know, even though he does come around to this way of thinking. He's never cool with Luke Skywalker because he remembers people that died on the Death Star. He agrees it had to go, but his feelings about that are always going to be ambiguous. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to meet the guy who's the big hero for destroying it. What things would he look at 
through his eyes, that would be different. That's why there's that scene with Mon Mothma where she's not this very aloof, almost surreal character, right. you know, speaking wisdom on this elevated thing. Instead, he meets her, you know, almost comically awful, <laughs> you know, mundane situation. And of course, you know, everybody's had that terrible moment where you're like, oh, that's the boss. Great. Just great. The main things that I focused on were the things that were going to be most interesting to look at through a perspective we hadn't had before. If you move through the long list of books now that you've worked with, especially within Star Wars, with both Bloodline and with Leia, Princess of Alderaan, I'd be interested with dealing with Leia at different stages in her life. And again, kind of making her even more three-dimensional beyond of what she already was portrayed in the movies. And how did you balance the characteristics of her, you know, as a teenager versus her in Bloodline? And what remained constant? What might have evolved over time for her character and her experiences? Well, they came to me hoping that I would write Bloodline when I had just gotten done with Lost Stars, uh -huh. really. And I was very much at that point not used to the very accelerated timeline that Star Wars publishing moves on. I've already done final, final, final edits for my Star Wars book coming out in January. I'm still going to be doing a few line edits for this book that's coming out in May. That normal publishing timeline takes a lot longer. So I was still kind of like, whew, I just got done. Wait, what? <laughs> they came to me and they're like, we need it really fast. Right. I had thought Lost Stars was really fast and it was nothing compared to this. I first said, I, I can't. Right. I, I just can't do it. I'm writing the last Firebird book. I've got to get that done this summer. I can't do it. And then the editor's like, it's Princess Leia. <laughs> I was like, damn it. <laughs> anyway, they sent me the write-up and it was very politically focused. And that's the longest thing I've ever gotten from Star Wars for a book. And even that was just about a page and a half of detail. They laid out who the political parties were and Ransom Castorfo was supposed to be her aide who was mm. secretly working against her and had this secret Imperial artifacts collection. And they mentioned the napkin bombing and that Castorfo revealed that Vader was her father and so she isn't elected for senator and she realizes they'll have to have the the resistance my very first thought was like she's got to blow something up do not get me wrong I loved so many of the old EU books and I bought so many like at Walden books in the yeah. mall so many but a lot of times it felt like Leia kind of got stuck doing the boring thing not always but there was a lot of her being in the senate with god I can never remember his name that dude that was just her constant antagonist. Garm Bell Ibis or something like that? Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah. Just, oh, you just want to smack him. And I was like, no, I, I want her to do something that's going to be a little bit more active. And so, you know, I got to play with that. And by now I was in. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll write this book in no time flat. I also didn't buy the idea that she would have somebody really actively working against her being one of her closest aides, because this is somebody who survived in an underground rebellion movement for years. And my thought was, if this person did not have a really finely honed sense of who to trust, we wouldn't even have gotten to a new hope with Princess Leia. Right. You know, she got trained in that hard and early. And so I was like, okay, what if we make him an out and out antagonist? But he's the antagonist who has a good point. Mm -hmm. So they wind up working together sometimes. And he sees his collection as, you know, this is historical. This is history. Come on. And she's, 
you know, freaked out by it. Really getting to dig into that was a lot of fun. And, you know, Star Wars had traditionally not been awash in viewpoints of women over 40. And it was interesting to think about a Princess Leia who was just a few years older than I was. Mm-hmm. And sort of to take my ideas as a little kid about Star Wars and look at them through adult eyes and sort of ask, okay, what does it feel like when you won the big battle, but it didn't change everything? Got together with the guy and he's awesome, but it didn't make things perfect, you know? And you have to accept that life has so much more complexity and that the kind of very neat, tidy endings that we see in you know, in Star Wars and in Return of the Jedi are really not ever quite that tidy in the end. Not long after that. And we had talked about maybe doing a Leia YA novel from very early on. And then they're like, yeah, we want to do this. They were like, yeah, we want you to tell the story of how she got involved in the rebellion. I was like, great. How'd she get involved in the rebellion? They're like, you tell us. (laughs) So good, you know. And that was going back to when Leia was only a few years older than I was when Mm -hmm. I was watching Return of the Jedi and trying to get back in touch with that way of looking at things. There was definitely some stuff that had sort of been, I think, fanon or at least assumed widely before then, like the idea like, oh, Bale brought her into the rebellion, you know, and then I was like, okay, if you're a parent and you're involved with something that if you are caught, best case scenario is that you will be murdered swiftly. Do you actually bring your pretty young kid into that? Not unless it's absolutely necessary. And you're going to really try hard to make it not absolutely necessary. You know, I didn't think that was a thing many parents were super likely to do if they could help it. I also definitely felt like she would be very active from the beginning because we know but that by the time of A New Hope, she's 19 and she's already a major leader. You have these gray-bearded generals, you know, running up to her and listening to her, taking advice, taking orders. You know, and this is not somebody who started small. This is not somebody who came in passively. So I was like, okay, I want her to really dig into this. And the two big things that happened, I mean, happened within a couple of weeks of each other. I wrote the initial outline. And then Rogue One came out and then Carrie Fisher died. So we knew that Leia's journey was going to be at an end pretty soon. Right. There didn't seem much chance at all that she would be surviving the the sequel trilogy. They really hit me after that. I mean, of course, we all as fans had sadness, but I just had this moment of Leia's whole life is that fight. She was fighting before Luke and Han showed up. She was fighting after they left. And we now know like it's her whole life. It consumes her whole life and she wouldn't have had it any other way. And yet at the same time, I think it's okay to like, look at the cost of that. She led a life that involved a lot of sacrifice and a lot of difficulty. And she chose that with her eyes wide open from the beginning. But I thought it was very poignant kind of going into that from the start, you know, knowing like this will be the entire shape of her life. This is the beginning of that. And then Rogue One, you had those scenes where the rebellion members, as late as right before A New Hope, are sort of like, are we really going to do this? Are we taking it this far? You know, it really made you think you cannot. No, Yeah, the Empire is incredibly evil, but you can't start a war that's going to kill like trillions of people, trillions, without stopping and saying, is this the right thing to do? 
you know, you, you have to really ask that. And the fact that there would be these really significant questions that even Bale and Brea and to some extent Leia would be asking themselves at this point, because it's even earlier, what will it take to get the empire taken down? What, right. what is it going to cost? Is it worth that risk? And you also have the character of Kira Damati, mm. who feels like he hates the empire, but at the same time, he's like, we challenge the empire, it hurts Alderaan. Mm-hmm. And I'm an Alderanian and I'm loyal to my world and we have to protect ourselves. And on the one hand, Leia makes this choice for the ultimate good of the whole galaxy. But was he wrong about the danger to Alderaan? He was not. <laughs> yeah. He was absolutely correct. So it was interesting to dig into it in that way. In terms of interesting characters that like you said, maybe we're not as flushed out as they could have been, especially in earlier EU novels and things like that. Moving to Master and Apprentice very briefly, one of my favorite characters in Star Wars is Qui-Gon. But what drew you to the character of Qui-Gon Jinn and, and how did you try to, again, add that three-dimensional characteristic to him and bring him even more to life? First, I have to defend like those old Jedi Apprentice books. Oh, the Jude Watson books. Incredible, oh, right? Oh, like- <laughs> I read those like crazy. I was 30. I know they were for younger people, but I was just... Oh my God, I devoured them. So I loved those. But I didn't feel overly constrained because I was writing about a later point in Obi-Wan's apprenticeship. So I felt like I had a little bit more room to do that without just treading on those books that I loved. And I definitely kept the idea that once upon a time, Obi-Wan had been a little bit rebellious himself Mm -hmm. and maybe had been somebody who they thought was going to be difficult to train. So I got to at least play with that. That book was actually very difficult to get started on. It was the most difficult of any of the ones that I've done so far because I had been wanting to write a Qui-Gon novel again from the beginning, had been campaigning for it, doing this, doing that. And then narrowing down exactly what story to tell was actually really hard. (laughs) You know, my Uh joke is always that what I wanted to write was the five volume biography of Qui-Gon Jinn and Lucasfilm Publishing was like, we are not actually (laughs) doing that right now. This is not our plan. We need right. to work with the plan. I'm like, fine. You know, but so finally I was like, what's the one thing you need to know? And once I narrowed that down, I realized the thing you have to know is why does he believe in those prophecies about a chosen one bringing balance to the force when really none of the other Jedi we meet do? Right. Why does he believe that? Because his belief in that shapes everything that happens afterward. If he didn't believe that, Anakin Skywalker would have lived out his life on Tatooine. Once I got into that, that really helped shape up the story and helped me figure out, okay, this is where we need to concentrate. And of course, that involved doing a lot with his backstory. And happily, I was working on this the same time that Kevin Scott was working on Dooku Jedi Lost, the audio. And we both realized that we had a much better chance of our backstories, like, getting approval from everybody if they match. <laughs> right. You know, so we made sure to sort of synthesize and say, okay, like this is how things were with Dooku. Right. Uh, I created the character of Rail Avaros, but oh, nice. he shows up in in Jedi Lost. Right. You know, so we were able to kind of create together some of that shared backstory that explained why clearly Dooku was a little bit more into some elements of mysticism. He was obviously much more open to the dark side and he dug deep into some lore that a lot of people no longer paid much attention to and as his padawan qui-gon got exposed to a lot of that 
So he sort of learned it all, but doesn't really believe in it until the events of Master and Apprentice that convince him. And that conviction is what drives his choices in The Phantom Menace. It was like a one-two punch of, of reading your book and then listening to that audiobook like on a road trip, I think, and being like, oh, like everything is connected. This is all incredible. And, and having that <laughs> kind of through line of Dooku to Qui-Gon to Obi-Wan to Anakin is a really fascinating thing that like you could, like you said earlier, it's like fanon wise, you could have kind of pieced that together, mm-hmm. but having it kind of spelled out and really fleshed out in such an incredible way was, was such a treat, especially for just me being a huge, huge prequel fan. To round out the Star Wars conversation specifically, of course, I would be remiss not to talk about High Republic and, and dealing yeah. with kind of this time period that, you know, beyond prequels, beyond original trilogy, beyond sequel trilogy era is this kind of untouched part of Star Wars almost and, and being able to craft that not only yourself but you know surrounded by other incredible authors I would love to yeah. maybe delve into your experiences with the initial Project Luminous and then how that's even evolved as people are now experiencing these books and these stories in in real time yeah I mean Mike Seglane who's sort of the head of Star Wars Publishing had mentioned me a long time ago wanting to do a longer sort of multi-platform narrative project. And so I knew that that was a thing that might eventually happen. But then finally, a few years ago, it starts getting put together. I find out who the other authors are, and we're going to go work at Skywalker Ranch. <laughs> That's oh. casual. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, by no the crazy. way. And actually, Daniel Jose Older had just moved to my city. It's very funny because everybody else is very spread out. And Daniel and I have literally like just acted Accidentally run into each other. We <laughs> <laughs> live very close to each other. And we got together at a place and we're just like, what's it going to be? What is it? Do you know what to expect? No, I don't either. And so going to Skywalker Ranch was both like really exhilarating because, you know, you're in this place. And I have to say, it really is gorgeous. You do not often see like that amount of wealth applied with that level of taste. Right. <laughs> Put it that way and thought like the entire place is designed to help foster creativity right and it absolutely does and that's everything down to like what's in the bedrooms the glorious library the fact that you walk between all the different buildings and you know reasonable distances but you're walking through this you know golden rolling countryside right. and that's when ideas come mm-hmm. you know a lot of times, not when you're just sitting at a desk forcing your brain to do something. It's an incredible place. But at the same time, it's like very intimidating as well. <laughs> Everybody there, I knew a fair number of the people already, at least through notes, but had met a lot of them in person before. I think Pablo Hidalgo and I had gotten together we were both at a con, I think it's Salt Lake. I think it was in Salt Lake. I may be wrong about that. But the reason I think it was Salt Lake was we decided like after things were over to like go and get a drink. And in Salt Lake City, you have to really, you have to game that. You have to figure out. You have to really to figure out where that's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's much fewer bars per cap. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm remembering a different level of, oh, where should we go? I don't know. But we ended up hanging out, talking about things once, which was really fun. And it was very much a very well-constructed brainstorming session. And the whole point of brainstorming is to throw everything out there. Don't worry about whether it's stupid. Don't worry about whether it's derivative. If it's in your brain and it seems a little bit interesting to you, put it out there and then start coming through and going, how do we make this smart? How do we make this interesting? What belongs? What doesn't belong? And being able to foster an environment, I mean, creatively, but really in any kind of work, 
where people are free to brainstorm and actually feel confident enough to share any idea without feeling like, oh, there's going to be this maximum judgment. It, it's it's rarer than it ought to be because it's an incredibly productive thing to do. And so after that, we each wrote up sort of story arcs and one was chosen and the whole concept of the High Republic sort of came out of that about wow. writing in this in this golden age that Obi-Wan Kenobi told us about. And of course, the fact that it's a golden age doesn't mean there isn't conflict or that there aren't Mm. problems. There's just no major intergalactic war like the ones that we saw in three trilogies because, you know, Ben Kenobi told us flat out that those hadn't (laughs) happened in a really long time. That's really the challenge because it's really, really easy to come up with conflict and come up with dramatic situations when people are behaving badly or things are breaking down. Mm -hmm. It's actually a lot more of a challenge to go, things are going well. And most of these people are operating really high level and I still need them to mess up. I need something that goes forth with the best intentions to hit this obstacle. It's its own kind of challenge. And I think we've all enjoyed coming at it in different ways. I'd be interested maybe now, like, you know, with five and then almost six books now in the Star Wars galaxy, plus short stories and looking back, are there any pieces of lore, characters you've introduced, or anything that really stand out to you and that you're the most proud of, of all the of all the babies, of all the things that you've you've put out there. Oh man. I mean, I love Lost Stars a lot. I just really adore that book and it happened at a really interesting point in my life and a lot of great things, only some of which were directly connected to Star Wars, sort of came out of that. So really everything to do with that. I really enjoyed the character of Ransom Castrofo. Uh A lot, a lot. (laughs) Incredible fun to write. And I definitely felt like that was a case where I was given something that I made better Mm -hmm. than it was. With Leia, Princess of Alderaan, the thing that really stood out to me was that not in the old EU, not in the new canon, really not in anything ever, had anybody dug much into Brea Organa, who is obviously a massive player in this. You know, her daughter and her husband are hugely into rebellion. She's the queen obviously this is a person who's going to know a great deal about it and yet she almost didn't exist as as a storytelling character you know also some things like i asked well, what does alderaan look like and uh-huh. i was told uh think about switzerland which of course is very beautiful and very peaceful but it also made me think about money because where do people hide money <laughs> <laughs> right. but it also made me realize a whole lot of capital had to move around kind of secretly for the rebellion to happen, like a lot. And nothing short of a planetary economy would be able to hide any of that. So that sort of awakened the idea that Brea had, that was sort of her task in the early rebellion was sort of, you know, getting some of these funds and funneling them in ways that weren't immediately going to show up on the Imperial radar. And so getting to build her out as a character and show that different role in it and show the dynamic between the three of them as a family. I was really happy with that. With Qui-Gon, I was happiest with the relationship with Obi-Wan and the ups and downs that they go through because they are so different people in many ways. And yet they're so hugely important to one another. It's about being very different people and still respecting each other. The right. fact that they can do this in different ways and have slightly different beliefs and still really honor the other person. That was important to me to, to dig into. With Into the Dark, I really enjoyed the crew of the vessel. Uh-huh. I mean, I know that this is about the High Republic and the Jedi at their height, but 
I just loved the little ship and <laughs> the three of them and their weird little family. They, yeah. they made me super happy. And then I guess, I don't know if I'm allowed to say anything about the fallen star yet. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not, we, I, I'm not here to uh, get any scoops or anything like that. We'll have to save that for another time for, for a part Yeah, I don't want to get point. pranked by some Disney lawyer hiding. Right, yeah. This has been such an honor for me to get to talk to you and such a joy. And it really, again, a Star Wars masterclass in itself. What is next for you? You mentioned the next Star Wars book, but how can people find you? What is upcoming Star Wars and beyond that people can check out and read? House of L book two is coming out soon. So I highly suggest finding House of L book one. Your local comic book shop can almost certainly order that for you if it is not in stock. The Murder of Mr. Wickham is coming out at the beginning of May next year. If you like mysteries and or Jane Austen at all, I think you'll have a lot of fun with it. It takes characters or couples from each of Jane Austen's six novels, puts them together in a house, and all of Austen's robes are always tied together. So Wickham turns out to have his finger in many pies and right. a beloved character is the killer, but who's it going to be? <laughs> and the investigators, the prime investigators are the daughter of Henry Tilney and Catherine Moreland from Northanger Abbey and Darcy and Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice, their son, Jonathan. So Incredible. playing with those characters has been absolutely delightful i still had a canon to work with but it was a canon right. nothing had been in 200 years it's like no, <laughs> right right here i know that i'll be doing some more star wars work going forward but exactly when and exactly what remains to be seen while we were talking i was like mm, let me pre-order murder mr wickham because that is uh 100 up my alley so incredible thank you so much for coming on and telling these stories thank you i had a lot of fun so much again to mrs gray for her time her incredible stories both on the podcast and on the page follow her on twitter at claudia gray and check out her full work at her site claudiagray.com that's all for this week stay tuned for our next weeks coming up including episodes with julie's lafleur william c deets and a few surprises as well if right now you can leave a five-star rating and review for the show it means a lot and really helps the show out so until next week stay tuned leave that five-star review and may the force be with you